0: SECTION 38 OF A HALF CENTURY OF CONFLICT This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines A HALF CENTURY OF CONFLICT By Francis Parkman, Jr. CHAPTER 21, PART 1, 1745-1747 DU D'ANVILLE The troops and inhabitants of Louisbourg were all embarked for France, and the town was at last in full possession of the victors. The serious-minded among them, and there were few who did not bear the stamp of hereditary Puritanism, now saw a fresh proof that they were the peculiar care of an approving providence. While they were in camp the weather had been favorable, but they were scarcely housed when a cold, persistent rain poured down in floods. That would have drenched their flimsy tents and turned their huts of turf into mud heaps, robbing the sick of every hope of recovery even now they got little comfort from the shattered tenements of louisbourg the siege had left the town in so filthy a condition that the wells were infected and the water was poisoned the soldiers clamored for discharge having enlisted to serve only till the end of the expedition and surely insisted that faith must be kept with them or no more would enlist pepperell much to the dissatisfaction of warren sent home about seven hundred men some of whom were on the sick list while the rest had families in distress and danger on the exposed frontier at the same time he begged hard for reinforcements expecting a visit from the french and a desperate attempt to recover louisbourg He and Warren governed the place jointly under martial law, and they both passed half their time in holding courts-martial. For disorder reigned among the disgusted militia, and no less among the crowd of hungry speculators who flocked like vultures to the conquered town to buy the cargoes of captured ships or seek other prey. The Massachusetts soldiers, whose pay was the smallest, and who had counted on being at their homes by the end of July, Were the most turbulent but all alike were on the brink of mutiny excited by their ringleaders they one day marched in a body to the parade and threw down their arms but probably soon picked them up again as in most cases the guns were hunting pieces belonging to those who carried them pepperel begged shirley to come to louisbourg and bring the mutineers back to duty accordingly on the sixteenth of august he arrived in a ship of war accompanied by Mrs. Shirley and Mrs. Warren, wife of the Commodore. The soldiers duly fell into line to receive him. As it was not his habit to hide his own merits, he tells the Duke of Newcastle that nobody but he could have quieted the malcontents, which is probably true, as nobody else had power to raise their pay. He made them a speech, promised them forty shillings in Massachusetts' new tenor currency a month instead of twenty-five, and ended with ordering for each man half a pint of rum to drink the king's health. Though potations so generous might be thought to promise effects not wholly sedative, the mutineers were brought to reason, and some even consented to remain in garrison till the next June. Small reinforcements came from New England to hold the place till the arrival of troops from Gibraltar, promised by the ministry. The two regiments raised in the colonies, and commanded by Shirley and Pepperell, were also intended to form a part of the garrison, but difficulty was found in filling the ranks, because, says Shirley, some commissions have been given to Englishmen, and men will not enlist here except under American officers. Nothing could be more dismal than the condition of Louisbourg, as reflected in the diaries of soldiers and others who spent there the winter that followed its capture. Among these diaries is that of the worthy Benjamin Crafts, private in Hale's Essex Regiment, who, to the entry of each day, adds a pious invocation, sincere in its way, no doubt, though hackneyed, and sometimes in strange company. Thus, after noting down Shirley's gift of a half a pint of rum to every man, to drink the king's help, he adds immediately, The Lord look upon us and enable us to trust in him, and may he prepare us for his holy day. On September, ye one, being Sabbath, we find the following record. I am much out of order. This forenoon heard Mr. Stephen Williams preach from ye 18 Luke 9 verse in the afternoon from ye eight of Ecclesiastes 8 verse. Blessed be the Lord that has given us to enjoy another Sabbath and opportunity to hear his word dispensed on the next day being monday he continues last night i was taken very bad the lord be pleased to strengthen my inner man that i may put my whole trust in him may we all be prepared for his holy will red part of plunder nine small tooth combs crafts died in the spring of the prevailing distemper after doing good service in the commissary department of his regiment Stephen Williams, the preacher whose sermons had comforted Crafts in his trouble, was a son of Reverend John Williams, captured by the Indians at Deerfield in 1704, and was now minister of Long Meadow, Massachusetts. He had joined the anti-papal crusade as one of its chaplains, and passed for a man of ability, a point on which those who read his diary will probably have doubts. The lot of the army chaplains was of the hardest. A pestilence had fallen upon Louisbourg, and turned the fortress into a hospital after we got into the town says the sarcastic dr douglas whose pleasure it is to put everything in its worst light a sordid indolence for sloth for want of discipline induced putrid fevers and dysenteries which at length in august became contagious and the people died like rotten sheep from fourteen to twenty-seven were buried every day in the cemetery behind the town outside the maripa gate by the old lime-kiln on rochefort point and the forgotten bones of above five hundred new england men lie there to this day under the coarse neglected grass the chaplain's diary is little but a dismal record of sickness death sermons funerals and prayers with the dying ten times a day prayed at hospital prayed at citadel prayed at grand eatery visited captain illegible very sick one of Captain company died, am but poorly myself, but able to keep about. Now and then there is a momentary change of note, as when he writes, July twenty ninth. one of ye captains of ye men of war caned a soldier who struck ye captain again. A great tumult, swords were drawn, no life lost, but great uneasiness is caused. Or when he sets down the say of some Briton, apparently a naval officer that he had thought ye new england men were cowards but now he thought yet if they had a pick and spade they would dig ye way to hell and storm it williams was sorely smitten with homesickness but he sturdily kept his post in spite of grievous yearnings for family and flock the pestilence slowly abated till at length the burying parties that passed the Maripa gate counted only three or four a day At the end of January, 561 men had died, 1,100 were on the sick list, and about 1,000 fit for duty. The promised regiments from Gibraltar had not come. Could the French have struck then? Louisbourg might have changed hands again. The Gibraltar regiments had arrived so late upon that rude coast that they turned southward to the milder shores of Virginia, spent the winter there, and did not appear at Louisbourg until April they brought with them a commission for warren as governor of the fortress he made a speech of thanks to the new england garrison now reduced to less than nineteen hundred men sick and well and they sailed at last for home louisbourg being now thought safe from any attempt of france to the zealous and energetic shirley the capture of the fortress was but a beginning of greater triumphs scarcely had the new england militia sailed from boston on their desperate venture when he wrote to the Duke of Newcastle that should the expedition succeed, all New England would be on fire to attack Canada, and the other colonies would take part with them, if ordered to do so by the Ministry. And some months later, after Louisbourg was taken, he urged the policy of striking while the iron was hot, and invading Canada at once. The colonists, he said, were ready, and it would be easier to raise 10,000 men for such an attack than one thousand to lie idle in garrison at louisbourg or anywhere else france and england he thinks cannot live on the same continent if we were rid of the french he continues england would soon control america which would make her first among the nations and he ventures what now seems the modest prediction that in one or two centuries the british colonies would rival france in population even now he is sure that they would raise twenty thousand men to capture canada if the king required it of them and warren would be an acceptable commander for the naval part of the expedition but concludes the governor i will take no step without orders from his majesty the duke of newcastle was now at the head of the government smollett and horace walpole have made his absurdities familiar in anecdotes which true or not do no injustice to his character Yet he had talents that were great in their way, though their way was a mean one. They were talents not of the statesman, but of the political manager, and their object was to win office and keep it. Newcastle, whatever his motives, listened to the counsels of Shirley, and directed him to consult with Warren as to the proposed attack on Canada. At the same time he sent a circular letter to the governors of the provinces from New England to North Carolina directing them, should the invasion be ordered, to call upon their assemblies for as many men as they would grant. Shirley's views were cordially supported by Warren, and the levies were made accordingly, though not in proportion to the strength of the several colonies, for those south of New York felt little interest in the plan. Shirley was told to dispose Massachusetts to do its part, but neither he nor his province needed prompting. Taking his cue from the Roman senator, he exclaimed to his assembly, Delenda est Canada. And the assembly responded by voting to raise 3,500 men and offering a bounty equivalent to four pounds sterling to each volunteer, besides a blanket for every one and a bed for every two. New Hampshire contributed 500 men, Rhode Island 300, Connecticut 1,000, New York 1,600, New Jersey 500, Maryland 300, and Virginia 100. The Pennsylvania Assembly, controlled by Quaker non-combatants, would give no soldiers. But, by a popular movement, the province furnished 400 men without the help of its representatives. As usual in the English attempts against Canada, the campaign was to be a double one. The main body of troops, composed of British regulars and New England militia, was to sail up the St. Lawrence and attack Quebec, while the levies of New York and the provinces further south, aided, it was hoped, by the warriors of the Iroquois, were to advance on Montreal by way of Lake Champlain. Newcastle promised eight battalions of British troops under Lieutenant General St. Clair. They were to meet the New England men at Louisbourg, and all were then to sail for Quebec, under the escort of a squadron commanded by Warren shirley also was to go to louisbourg and arrange the plan of the campaign with the general and the admiral thus without loss of time the captured fortress was to be made a base of operations against its late owners canada was wild with alarm at reports of english preparation there were about fifty english prisoners in barracks at quebec and every device was tried to get information from them but being chiefly rustics caught on the frontiers by indian war parties they had little news to give, and often refused to give even this. One of them, who had been taken long before and gained over by the French, was used as an agent to extract information from his countrymen, and was called Notre Homme de Confiance. At the same time the prisoners were freely supplied with writing materials, and their letters to their friends being then opened, it appeared that they were all in expectation of speedy deliverance. In July, a report came from Acadia that from 40 to 50,000 men were to attack Canada, and on the 1st of August, a prisoner, lately taken at Saratoga, declared that there were 32 warships at Boston ready to sail against Quebec, and that 13,000 men were to march at once from Albany against Montreal. If all these stories are true, writes the Canadian journalist, all the English on this continent must be in arms preparations for defense were pushed with feverish energy fire ships were made ready at quebec and fire rafts at isle a coudre provisions were gathered and ammunition was distributed reconnoitring parties were sent to watch the gulf and the river and bands of canadians and indians lately sent to acadia were ordered to hasten back thanks to the duke of newcastle all these alarms were needless the massachusetts levies were ready within six weeks and Shirley, eager and impatient waited in vain for the squadron from england and the promised eight battalions of regulars they did not come and in august he wrote to newcastle that it would now be impossible to reach quebec before october which would be too late the eight battalions had been sent to portsmouth for embarkation ordered on board the transports then ordered ashore again and finally sent on an abortive expedition against the coast of france there were those who thought that this had been their destination from the first and that the proposed attack on canada was only a pretense to deceive the enemy it was not till the next spring that newcastle tried to explain the miscarriage to shirley he wrote that the troops had been detained by headwinds till general st clair and admiral le thought it was too late to which he added that the demands of the european war made the canadian expedition impracticable and that Shirley was to stand on the defensive and attempt no further conquests. As for the provincial soldiers, who this time were in the pay of the crown, he says that they were very expensive, and orders the governor to get rid of them as cheap as possible. Thus, not for the first time, the hopes of the colonies were brought to naught by the failure of the British ministers to keep their promises. When in the autumn of 1746... Shirley said that for the present Canada was to be let alone, he bethought him of a less decisive conquest and proposed to employ the provincial troops for an attack on Crown Point, which formed a halfway station between Albany and Montreal and was the constant rendezvous of war parties against New York, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, whose discords and jealousies had prevented them from combining to attack it the dutch of albany too had strong commercial reasons for not coming to blows with the canadians of late however massachusetts and new york had suffered so much from this inconvenient neighbor that it was possible to unite them against it and as clinton governor of new york was scarcely less earnest to get possession of crown point than was shirley himself a plan of operations was soon settled by the middle of october fifteen hundred massachusetts troops were on their way to join the new york levies and then advance upon the obnoxious post end of section thirty eight recording by dion gines salt lake city utah